Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Labs podcast. Rick Roberts here. Today, episode 202, I've got my buddy Rick Walker. Rick Walker I met early on in the 1990s, like 1991 or two, when I first started getting into comedy. He was part of an improv comedy troupe in Columbus, Ohio, called Midwest Comedy Tool and Die. Tool and Die because they customize and make each show specific to the needs of that audience. (laughs) How about that? Anyhow, Rick, I knew from there, we worked together on the road many, many years, probably eight or nine years all together. And then uh, he moved to Chicago, where he started doing all kinds of crazy stuff, eventually leading up to his current position, teaching comedy at Columbia University. They have a four-year college comedy program there. Did you know that? <laughs> Man, I wish I was, wish I could have taken that when I was in school. I would have been there early, stayed late. And graduated fast because that's that's the kind of stuff I was into. But there was no place to do it back then. Now there is Columbia University. My good buddy Rick Walker is a tenured staff member teaching those classes. He's done it all, so he teaches it all. We'll talk all about that here in just a second. I did want to say thanks to our episode sponsor this week. It's Donna Lewis. Donna from New York City. How about that? That's right. The real deal. Thank you, Donna, for supporting us through taking the online comedy class. You can also support us out there by joining Patreon and uh, c- contribute just a little bit every month if you like the podcast to help us keep moving. All right, we're going to get right into it right now. I'll talk to you on the backside about some exciting things coming up here at the School of Last. But right now, my friend Rick Walker, who I knew and still know from early in my comedy days. <laughs> I am sitting here with Rick Walker. How's it going, buddy? Oh, it's all good. Yes, definitely. Well, thanks for having me in your humble abode here in Chicago, where it all happens. Oh, yeah. All the magic right here. And Rick is a guy uh, like I've known since early 90s. I would say 91 is probably when I first came across uh, Rick and the improv group Midwest Comedy Tool and Die. But you guys had started earlier than that. I was kind of joining midstream. You guys were already had a fluid thing going on. When did you guys get together and how that looked like so uh mctd started i think around uh the summer of or, or the winter the beginning of the year in 87 i think and uh what had happened was there was a fledgling uh comedy sports in 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 uh columbus and uh it it failed after i think six weeks or eight weeks or something like that so they had a short run and uh uh, so this woman, Lisa Phillips, took sort of the best of those folks. And then simultaneously, my brother and a couple of, a couple of my friends from high school, Mike Loftus and Robert Holmes, uh, were, were doing open mic nights, uh, while I was off at school. And I came home that summer and they had been doing open mics. And I was like, I'm as, I'm funny as they are. <laughs> right. Let me get in on this. And so we started playing and, uh, then Lisa kind of came and, took some of those the open micers and some of the comedy sports people and put them together and uh, started MCTD. And that's what I always, well, looking back now that I see there's so many types of improv and so many different types of groups, the thing that I liked about 
MCTD was it was very laugh driven. It was you know there, yes. there was scene work and and you were a, an anchor. You and Jeff Gage both were an anchor of trying to make sure the scene had the proper elements of stagecraft. And then the rest of us would like walk right through the screen door and into the refrigerator. <laughs> well, we were very interested, especially when we first started. Uh, we because we didn't know a lot about comedy, but we what we knew we, we were like this is these are the rules. And so one of the rules for the standups uh, were you know the LPMs, laughs per minute. So we were very focused on those laughs per mm-hmm. minute. I remember when we went to go uh, study with Paul Sills up in Door County, who is one of the founding members of, of Second City. He, he ran workshops with improv groups. He hated us. <laughs> yeah. We would go, and he would be like, stop the scene. This isn't improv. This is the eighth week of a sitcom. <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> He'd drop F-bombs at us. <laughs> but, I mean, we were just, we weren't uh, doing what, traditional improv was what they were doing in Chicago. Uh, we were doing our own thing that was very much about uh, audience appeal and fast play and just lots of laughs. And that was, was that kind of the the thing with the improv Olympics back then was the funnier group would advance. So it was kind of built into the DNA or was that just from the standups being in there? You mean with comedy sports or with, yeah, with comedy sports. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's it's set up. It's a short form, uh, a short form show, you know, like short scenario improv. Um, but it's set up as a competition. So they're still trying to do, you know, good solid improv with relationships and all of that. Um, and, but it's, it's set up, it's a show, you know, it's, it's like big time wrestling, you know? right? It's right. Like, you're not really competing, but you're kind of competing. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so that's the way it is with comedy sports. So you're doing all those short form, all those short format improv as opposed to long format, like the Herald or something like what, mm-hmm. like that's what they do at um, improv Olympic. When we first started MCTD, we didn't know a lot of improv, but we did know some structures that they had learned from comedy sports and some things that we had read about. Then we invented a lot of games and, you know, but they were very much for the show and very much for, you know, laughs. Right. So we weren't getting deep into relationships. and So there was like a shorthand to it just to kind of get on the same page. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, getting, getting, making those laughs happen quickly. Not, and we weren't patient either with it. So, you know, the audience didn't have to be patient. We weren't patient. We were trying to get to the funny fast. Right. And I don't know. When I joined the group in 91, so you guys have been together since 87 or so, you said. So that's a good good chunk of time that you guys had built relationships and you had kind of the bond of i kind of know where he might go with this in the scene and that kind of thing well to to add to that i mean my brother was one of the original members and my two best friends from high school so mike and and robert so you had all that history i mean we used to just sit in the car and drink beer and and rhyme peanut as many times as we could (laughs) you know or whatever you know i mean we were we didn't even know what improv was really at that point but we were just practicing improv skills or doing characters goofy characters just talking Mm -hmm. trying to make each other laugh sitting in the parking lot (laughs) you know that's that's like a great shorthand kind of you you have all those members like just like every friends have you you could just say the word green and i know what you're talking about you know and you had that but you were able to take that and and be with those guys on stage and create something with it i'm in chicago with, with rick and on the flight up here i was thinking about some of the crazy times and like we had our van stolen once. Oh, that was 
That was hilarious. And it was somewhere in Michigan, somewhere between Grand Rapids and Sault Ste. Marie or somewhere. It was in the middle of the state. Maybe I think it was Lansing, but I could be wrong. It, yeah, it could be. I, what I remember about it, though, is that it had f- freshly snowed. Alan, I think, was warming up the van and came back in, and we're all like being long, lingering goodbyes to whoever, you know, we're ha- hanging out with. And we come out, and the van is gone, and we can <laughs> see the tracks. Right. So some of us, I think, go, I mean, where it had tried to drive away. So Jeff, I think, took off running down, follow the tracks. Some of us went in to stay warm. Yeah, stay warm, (laughs) call the police, whatever. Um, I think I ran with Jeff for a minute, but then I was like, nah, this is stupid. Why would I run after a van by following its tracks? But Jeff tracked it down. (laughs) They had stopped, and Jeff caught the guy and uh, as jeff said i talked him down (laughs) (laughs) you don't want this horrible van you won't even get another mile on this thing (laughs) right this guy was seriously drunk (laughs) just like a drunk jerk and uh jeff beat him up a little bit (laughs) and sat on him until the cops got there that is so funny there's a lot of odd little things almost every week there was some kind of craziness yeah going on and those were good days and uh you know, it lasted several years, six or seven at least, uh, when I was with it. I wanted to tell this, because I, I always remember this, uh, and I still use this kind of approach. We were up in the uh, Upper Peninsula somewhere, or in Wisconsin, and a snowstorm came. What, you know, as we were riding into town to go do our show that night, there was a big snowstorm, and... You know, it's like, are they going to cancel the show? I hope they cancel the show, but they didn't cancel the show. And like, there were six or seven, six people there. And uh, we kind of wanted to cancel the show, but we went on. And uh, instead of doing the normal intro, I think it was Jeff, just instead of doing, you know, it was his turn to intro the show. And instead of doing the normal intro, he's like, hey, I'm Jeff Gage. What's your name? And he just went and we just ended up just introducing ourselves to each member of the audience uh-huh. and, and so on. And then we went back up stay, on stage and, and it was more like a parlor game or, you know, a series of parlor games. And just and it was such a memorable experience. And they the audience had this really great time. We had a great time. And uh, we, instead of it being like a miserable night where we performed for, you know, six people, it ended up being this really great night where we shared, you know, a a couple of hours, you know, an hour and a half with, you know, these people, this intimate show, and then ended up hanging out and chatting with them well after the show was over. Yeah, it's one of those things where, you know, Jeff, I don't know if he did that on purpose or intuitively, but it, it, it changed the expectations of the experience. Like, it would be weird to not acknowledge there's just six people and to go up and try to perform a show like you would do in front of 300. I mean, mentally you want to give it that energy, but you can't keep the same expectation of, I mean, it's so much, it's so demanding of the audience to laugh at, you know, 90 minutes and there's only six of them. There's yeah. like all those different dynamics that change when you kind of get to know them a little bit and like, Hey, we're all in this together. You, God bless you for coming out. We're going to figure out how to make this work. And it turned out to be a super night. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things that it's hard to do that if you're new or newish, it yeah. takes that kind of comfort level. And then that has been a lesson that I've carried with me. I, I mean, luckily, I haven't had to use that very mm-hmm. often. I've been part of a lot of you know successful shows, but you know, sometimes it comes up, and then there's just a just a few right few people. You got to kind of let them know that you know. Yeah, that's a bit. You just acknowledging what's going down. It's part of 
I don't know, there's such a big authenticity movement in comedy these days where it has to be real and it has to be oh, this, <laughs> which I, you know, a little, you know, I like a comic that I can believe, but I don't have to believe everything. You know, the suspension of disbelief is enough for me, but there's so many people that won't talk about something unless it actually happened. And it turns out nothing ever actually happened interesting in their day. So you sit there and watch the guy talk about being at Starbucks for 45 minutes. Oh like, boy, that sounds like a real treat. <laughs> horrific. <laughs> yeah. uh, so towards the end of the 90s, we were kind of all heading different directions with things. Uh, one of our guys went off California to pursue stand up and now writes for a bunch of guys and still does stand up. One. One had gone to Nashville to try to do some songwriting, uh, just various things. You went to Chicago mm-hmm. to get more into improv, improv, and, and well, just, actually, I moved here to get away from improv and to do get back into theater. And I so I, get theater, when yeah. I first came to Chicago, I was doing theater around town, and, uh, and one thing led to another, and I ended up doing a lot of corporate spokesman work. Yeah, I remember staying, you know, crashing at your place when I play Zanies up here. And some days you'd be like in a little suit and you're headed out the door at nine in the morning. I'm like, this is different. Where are you headed? And you had these spokesperson gigs where they would give you a script and some of them were pretty long. Instead of memorizing word for word, you would speak them into a recorder, a yeah. tape recorder, like one of the small ones, micro cassette or whatever, and then have an earpiece. Mm-hmm. And somehow, like I still this day wonder how you record that, hear it, and then still say it. And stay in time with it and are able to pause it or interact. Like, tell me how that went down. Yeah, so it's called an ear prompter. And uh, basically, yeah, it's the script playing in your ear. And I, I had a, like a wireless setup, so you couldn't even see that. It's a, like a really tiny hearing aid looking thing. Mm-hmm. It goes in your ear and you wear this thing called a loop. And it broadcasts the signal from your recorder. Um, I would have on the rig that I had, it had a little, I had a little pause button that I could Velcro to my belt. And so I could stop it, you know, if I needed to, or if something went wrong or whatever. Uh, But basically you're just repeating right after you're repeating yourself right after you hear it in your ear and you could do an hour long presentation. You know, as long as your, your read is clean, you can do a, you know, you can now, I mean, it's better if you can like rehearse with it a bit and Mm -hmm. it's just, prompting you like you know the lines and you know what's coming up and it's just prompting you but it's also possible to do like two hour I, like i know guys that would do four hour presentations that's crazy to me yeah like there because what do you do with the other voices in your head that are already there and you gotta listen to this one part it's like a, a course. Well, that's called therapy and medication <laughs> so. that is cool and you would do some of those gigs and you had you had, you had gotten into doing some Shakespearean based improv and you still yeah. do that for yeah, people so that have no idea what that is like. Tell me how you structure those kinds of so shows. 2006, I think we started improvised Shakespeare or Blaine, Blaine Swin started it. And, uh, so I still do it and I'm, I'm currently the Chicago director and, uh, run, run things here. Uh, I'll be doing that show tonight, two of them. Um, so it is, Based loosely on the Herald format, so it's, uh, without getting too into the weeds with what a a Herald is a long form improv, where you have like a group uh, game, a then three beats, three different scenes, Mm -hmm. and then uh, Herald would go back into a group game, uh, three three beats, group game, three beats, uh, bring it to an end. Um, 
So ours is our first beat. Our first act is about 45 minutes. We start out with a prologue where we've kind of developed over the years. We, we, we start with a prologue. We get a, a suggestion for a title. First thing is a prologue. One of the guys will come out and do, you know, rhyming couplets, exploring the topic, the, mm-hmm. the, the title. Um, and then, uh, like, um, s- one of last night's titles was salty cupcake. And so they played with uh, rhyming couplets talking about a salty cupcake for a couple of minutes. Then the first scene we meet, uh, we, we meet a King or somebody, we meet some major characters they have once. Then the second scene, we meet the conflicting character or Mm -hmm. something. And then a third scene, and then we do it like a usually a group game slot, and then that's usually the end of the first act. And then uh, during intermission, we just kind of talk about who, what are the names of the characters I just played, what do they want, and no pre-planning or anything like that. We just kind of talk about what's already happened, where we are, and then the second act is just real loose. Whatever happens, we just know it's going to come to an end. Where you know, in Shakespeare, there are, there are really three kinds of plays: there are comedies. Where at the end, everybody gets married. There are the tragedies. In the end, everyone dies. Right. And the histories where it's some combination of those two things. And so uh, we we just kind of see where it takes that. you. Yeah. And whether it makes sense for everyone to get married at the end or everyone to get buried. That's great. And for like tonight's shows, you're doing two. Are they 90 minutes? Or are they? Yeah, they're about 90 minutes. 90 gotcha. to... 95 that's great and how many players will you have in the group five well tonight i think we'll have four because uh it's just the way it worked out uh-huh. but normally we would always have five players and they're about uh 13 players that i schedule to take those five slots gotcha. but we do five shows a week every week and for people that are listening that live in Chicago or come through, what's, what's the name of the venue and your group? Uh, Improvised Shakespeare at IO Chicago. Great. Formerly the Improv Olympic. Yeah. So, and I know I've, we've got plenty of listeners in Chicago. So make sure you check Rick out and tell him that you heard him on the podcast and you know me. And then he'll look at you and go, sorry about that. <laughs> sorry you know that, dude. Um, so that's that's cool. And I, I wish I could stick around and, and see it tonight firsthand. But I have to jet out here in a little bit. Next uh, time. Next we, time for sure. There's always shows. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, maybe next time I'll speak to your class. Now, Rick not only does improv and has done all kinds of performance, but tell tell me about your new position, ex- exactly what your title is and how long you've been doing it. Well, I am lucky enough to teach in the first comedy major in the country. Uh, so it's a four-year program. Uh, it's called, uh, it's at Columbia College, and it's the comedy writing and performance major. So it's a BA program. And, uh, um, after the woman that started it and Libra, uh, started it, I was the first full-time hire. Um, I, I got interested in teaching some years ago and I ended up going back to grad school because I was very interested in teaching on the college level. And when I graduated, I came back to Chicago and improvise and went back to my improv life for a while. And then, uh, then I was lucky enough to get hired into the one job that I really wanted. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I mean, I, I heard that. I'm like, man, I wish they had this in Nashville. I'd might settle I, down and yeah. hunker down and do it. So tell me about the. And so I'm, uh, uh, well, I just got this year, I'm starting a new position where I'm, uh, on a tenure track position. So I've got a nice raise and it's a, it's a nice promotion for me. Um, so I'm more than just a full time. I'm really committed to this 
program this school and the school is showing its commitment to me as well. That's cool. So, so you have input on the vision of everything now as well and kind of like where it's going to head and what you can add to it. Yeah. And luckily I've always kind of had that because I, I designed the freshman experience and then moved on to work on the sophomore experience. And, and so, uh, yeah, so I've created a number of classes at the school and, and, um, I, and I have a lot of fun because I get to teach everything that I've been doing over mm-hmm. the last 35 years. So I teach stand up. I have a stand up class that I teach, uh, on Fridays. I teach, uh, writing, sketch writing. So I worked at second city for a number of years and got, got pretty familiar with, uh, writing sketch. And, uh, I get to, and I'm also, I love acting, you know, just straight ahead acting. So I get to teach that. Um, so the, really the freshman experiences, uh, the first semester is focused on writing, uh, joke writing, and then using that writing across medium. So we, we write, uh, Stand up, we write videos, we do blackouts, and then we do sketches, and the semester culminates in a, a mini sketch show. And then the spring semester, the second semester of the freshman year, is uh, focused on character and point of view. And so uh, we do clown, we do comedia, we do dramatic scenes, we do comedic scenes, and then they pitch a character piece. So it could be solo sketch or it could be scene work. Um, for a big final performance. That's pretty cool, man. I, I might just have to go back to school. <laughs> it really is awesome. It is like all the stuff that I wish that I had gotten in undergrad because it's all the stuff that I ended up doing throughout my career. Cause right. Because I've always performed and I've always written. Um, even though I, I like originally my ambition was to be an actor, I kept finding myself in the situation where uh, instead of waiting to be given work, I w- would create work. Mm-hmm. And so that, I mean, that's a big part of what MCTD was, was just us creating our own work, not waiting for somebody to hire us. Right. Right. Yeah. Especially lo- the local stuff that was just, you know, there was, there was nights where, I mean, there was some parts of Midwest Comedy Show that if I remember, like we had four nights in a row. Oh yeah. So we did Friday, Saturday at one, the Hey Hey Club and we did Thursday at, at one place and we'd find, you know, a Wednesday to do here and it was, it was almost we had the com- Yeah. We had those, we had the comedy club, we had Ruby Tuesdays and we had Hey, hey, we were doing four shows a week in town. Yeah, so it's almost easier to stay back instead of hitting the road with it. Yeah, that's cool. Now, with your um, with your classes, how many people are like enrolled in this track of of comedy? Like, I think we have two hundred and twenty five students. It's a pretty popular. It's yeah, popular <laughs> major. And luckily, we just hired uh, some other full time faculty because it was it was Ann Libra and I full time, and then uh, a number of adjuncts. Uh, carrying that that workload of of all of those students so i just met my newest you know 70 kids yesterday uh the freshmen where we we had a big like sort of icebreaker session where i talked to them a little bit about the program and then ran them through a bunch of uh exercises that's great learn some names i think it's just amazing that I'm sure every, like, some people take a major because their dad was a doctor or, you know, whatever. But I'd imagine all seven of these kids are like, this is awesome. Like, the the enthusiasm. Do you see that or do you still see they're a student and they don't like to do the work or, you know, do you think they're a little more invested? It's a mix. You know, I'd say there's a third that are like, this is my life. This is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. This is what I'm going to do for the rest Mm -hmm. of my life. There are a third that are, you know, gung-ho and and really ready to, to make, you know to commit to the work. Uh, there's a third that are like, 
I I think this is what I want to do. This looks cool. Um, yeah. Kind of kick the tires a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, they probably would be very successful in, in all kinds. I mean, all most of these kids, almost all of them would be very successful no matter what they mm-hmm. try to do be, because they're, you know, they're intellectually curious and uh, for the most part and ambitious and, you know, they would and, and smart. Like, uh, I would say our students are very smart and um, a lot of them are very motivated. And so they'd be successful anywhere. But then there's a third that are like, uh, I don't know what I want to do. Um, this looks like a fun thing to do. Oh, comedy requires all this work. What? <laughs> right, you know, I right. thought it was just being funny. And it's like, no, there's a lot of discipline and craft to it, too. So, right. So it's a wake up. Kind of an eye opener for some of those. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting. Yeah. You know, obviously, I teach classes now, too. And that the advantage of taking a class for people who who are interested in something, no matter what the field is, it's such a primer. It, it gives you some foundation and some structure for the art. Like cause the, the argument I always hear from people, you can't teach people how to be funny. You know, you, you, whatever. And I'm like, well, I can teach them how to get there a lot faster if they know what road they're on. I can teach them the structure so they're not spending as much. You know, it took me, I always tell people it took me 10 or 12 years to even know why I was getting last. I didn't know what the technique was I was using until I started to learn them so I could teach a class, you know? So having that yeah. built in, it's, you know, in these young ages. And do you have also older people coming back to school that are getting into this program at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Especially a lot of vets, you know? Oh, cool. Are, yeah. It's, it's really great. Um, there, there are definitely older people. I, I do love that they can avoid some of the pitfalls that we had to go through, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure this stuff out. Cause you know, we weren't taught comedy, but I think, I think, yeah, you can't teach people talent. You can't give them, natural talent but you can give them a lot of the craft a lot of you know a lot of the uh philosophies behind i mean some of the older comics that were ahead of us you know taught you know like i remember frankie bestiel and uh rich jenny giving Mm -hmm. us advice and just like these older guys that that gave us advice on how to approach the work and you know that was very helpful now you can get this very in a very concentrated form uh, at school. Yeah. So you can get, I think it's a huge advantage to come in at 18 and Ugh. get all these hours of work and C- guidance and feedback. I couldn't even imagine just the, the amount of work. I mean, you've put together courses, you've experienced the life, you've curated the techniques and the skills, uh, you know, how to tweak the skills and coach up the skills. Plus see the structure behind all the writing. It's like I'm, I'm kind of feeling like I might want to just move up here for four years and go through the whole thing. Um, what are, what have been some eye opening things for you as a as an instructor? Um, I'll hit it from two angles. One of, of something that you were able to do that you never had thought would come with the the position of teaching and instructing comedy, and then maybe we'll come back in a minute to a realization one of your students have had where you're like, wow, I didn't even know that's what I was teaching, but they picked up that. Hmm. Those are great questions. Um, things that I, you know, I, I think the, the something that I, I didn't realize is just, you know, it can be exhausting just like thinking all the time, like evaluating, trying to figure out how to make this student better, that student better. Um, it, it can be very tiring. But the other side of that is there are so many talented kids, you know, the, these, these, these folks are so talented it, that it's uh, really amazing to watch 
uh, how inventive they can be. And they'll come up with, you know, I, I give them a lot of prompts. I'm not telling them exactly how to do it, but th- the solutions that they come up with sometimes are like, oh, that is so fantastic. Like, I never would have thought of approaching it that way. And then they, you know, you get to see that creativity unleashed. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, what was the second part of that question? Well, you kind of answered it both there in one sentence, but how something that a student has done where it surprised you that they maybe picked up something in between the words that you were saying as a teacher, but they somehow got oh, the yeah. info and it, you know, one of my way. goals as a teacher is not to, you know, cause I'm, cause I am interested in, uh, unleashing your creativity i'm i i'm not like a real didactic kind of teacher where it's like two plus two is four Mm -hmm. um i'm more like the target is over there you're gonna have to tell me the bullseye that you're going for and i will help you hit that bullseye but uh i can show you where the target is and i can give you the bow and the arrow but you have to tell me where the bullseye is and i'll help you hit that so um it, you have to be really flexible with each student at the same time, you know, please use this bow and this arrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, so I can give them some of the tools, but not all of the, you know, I can't necessarily tell them where that bullseye is. Right. And so my feedback has to be, you know, I have to stay awake, <laughs> you know, I have to actually <laughs> right. listen, you know, to what the students are doing. That's- and and sometimes they're mad that, you know, where they hit the target, and I'm like, that wasn't the bullseye that we agreed to. You know, like, uh-huh. and I, and sometimes they don't like the feedback that I give them, but you know, it's always given with, Hey, I'm just trying to help you get the bullseye. Right. Right. And that's t- another thing, like w- as opposed to math where there is a specific answer, there might be a couple different ways to solve the problem, but it needs to end up as X or what have you with comedy being a subjective thing. Like, you know, you can't, or do you have like a the funny scale of like you know that was a one out of a ten laugh that I got but you got the one and then you like how do how do you take it from being a personal rejection to the student when you give them feedback that they wouldn't have if it's math oh you got this wrong here's how you do it with comedy you're like uh man that just right I so I I do, do have to kind of like limit it to here is the bow and here is the mm-hmm. arrow like. I, you can't use this other bow and arrow. You can't use this sword, right. <laughs> you know, to hit the target. Like you have to use these tools and that's what I'm going to evaluate. Did you use those tools? Um, another thing is, is, uh, with, with the evaluation, I, I try not to think about like, that is definitely like this kind of humor is definitely not my taste. I try not to let that confuse uh, whether or not they actually employed the tools. Um, and I'll, I'll, frankly, and I'll tell them pretty frankly, like, Hey, this is not my kind of humor, but the, the question I have for you is, is this how you want to represent yourself? What is the integrity that you're entering into this work? You know, are you saying this just because you think it gets a laugh? Or are you saying this because you think it's a truth Mm -hmm. that you, uh, that you find funny? And I'd imagine early on they they do take a lot of the short, quick, laugh type approaches sure. before they they learn how to develop and then trust the, the development that they've had with sure. the classes. And and when they do, sometimes the feedback is, "I expect more from you. You you are here studying this to take it to a higher level. Mm-hmm. Challenge yourself to make make you know meet that higher level." Yeah, you know something I've started to not grapple with, but explore as a concept is not connecting with an audience through lowest common denominator, but 
instead the highest common connection that we would have with that audience. Right. Often you just have to take them there. You just have to show them. You just they don't have to necessarily connect with you, but they have to be able to connect with the thought mm-hmm. that you're having. You like illuminate it for them and they'll see they'll see the inside of the cave if you if you light it up for them. Right. And that's your job as the performer, the storyteller, the comedian is to, you know, to illuminate something for the audience and show them some new way of looking at it that they can say, Oh man, that's a new way of thinking. Mm -hmm. It's a whole different way of looking at it. Yeah. I I, I would love to see the light bulbs going off in the room because I'm sure that's, and that's the reward as a teacher as much as anything else is when they do get it. I see it with my own students when they finally flip the switch on some things like, Oh, it's not that it was hard. I just didn't know what it felt like to do it. And now that I've done it, I can repeat the process and I can, you know, I know it's going to take a little while to get there, so I'm not going to get frustrated when I get halfway there and quit. Yeah. Like, do you? How early do you see some of those light bulbs going off with your kids? Some some and, kids is every single class. They're like every time they they try something new, they're like, "Oh my god, this is this is so cool!" And some kids, you know, uh, for for all kinds of different reasons, um, you know, it's a little slower for them to grab onto it. And I think for comedians fledgling comedians beginning comedians like uh we're a skeptical bunch we we look at the world through a a lens like is that necessary is that real and sometimes that can get in the way of the student you know the student needs to be more of an open vessel and mm-hmm. to try things and sometimes the comedy student you know comedians don't like to be told what to do we don't like to be told what to think. Right. We're resistant, you know. So I get it. I get it. Um, but it gets in the way of, of learning and right. teaching. Well, I mean, that's, that's the beauty of what you have in front of you are, are kids and adults who want to take a chance on something that they haven't done before. They they do have their built-in skepticism about things, but they they have to find in a group setting how to share ideas that are accepted as humorous as well as accepted as whatever the assignment would be. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. like I would find, I don't, I'm trying to think if I would find that incredibly intimidating as a new student or just like, Hey, every day, this is the way I approach it now. Every day is an experiment. I just need to get results to find out if the experiment went re- right or not. Yeah. It so, doesn't, and it doesn't have to go right every time. I mean, I mean that <laughs> you don't learn as much when everything works. Right. It's when things don't work. It's like, Oh, Oh, I just need to shift it this way. That's how it works. So, it, yeah, being successful every time is isn't probably not very helpful. No, but. you know, it, it cancels out all of your creativity because you're editing as you're creating if you're trying to do something perfect. Yeah. And you have to create, then go back and edit with this, the other half of your brain. And, you know, when I first started, I didn't realize that was the the way that the brain worked you know even with my college education nobody explained to me there's a creative side there's an analytical so i would sit there and try to write a joke and i just stare at it and i would uh, as soon as i was writing something like that's stupid i'd cross it out and like i didn't give myself permission to explore it yeah. and the one thing i learned from the improv group when i joined was oh man it's all about exploration and then finding out where you're at and if it works, then duplication. But it's not about trying to do it perfect the first time because that's nearly impossible. Right. I, I love the Hemingway quote of uh, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So it's just like give yourself permission to say whatever. And then you can always, I mean, that's the beauty of the editing process. And that's what, uh, you know, it's super important for students to understand is that, like it's uh, revision. Revision is the job. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you're not, 
in improv, you know, you 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 only have one chance, and it's right here in this moment, and it's all one big inside joke between you and the audience. You all have the same information. You know, it is what it is. But anything that's like uh, a repeatable performance, like stand up, would be is you know, it's about the revision. It's not just about the writing. Mm-hmm. It's that performance, that feedback that you get from the audience, and then you revise, and then you perform it again get the feedback and you revise so that you end up with a joke that works every time for every audience. Mm-hmm. Hopefully. I mean that those are really magical jokes, right? Well, I'm curious and I'm, I'm sure it's been the case where some of your students have said some things out loud in class, either as a result of homework or as experiment t- experimenting where it's like with the politically correctness of our world today, like first the thought wasn't even like, funny and maybe second it was like whoa that's who is that who you really are down in deep or or were you just trying to do that to get a laugh what do you what do you do in those situations to not only let the student know that uh, we need some parameters here in, in the class but also let the other students know hey i got this let me let me see if i can fix this real quick yeah i mean that has uh on occasion come up uh not in a while i do want there to be you know you've heard of safe spaces. You know, I, I do want the, I do want uh, the classroom to be a place where you can risk failing mm-hmm. and, you know, like, let's not talk about it outside of class. Like whatever happens here, let's try and keep this, you know, a brave space where people can make mistakes uh, that they can feel emboldened to make mistakes. But sometimes there is something where it's just like, so malicious it's <laughs> right. just like is this the, what but i i try not to shame them for that uh the, the <laughs> if i <laughs> i have been accused of trying to shame students but it's always about that they didn't do enough work mm-hmm. on like they didn't they they weren't rehearsed right they didn't put in the time you know that, that that's the thing that you know you're wasting everyone's time by being up there for you know your four minutes or whatever and you clearly did not plan right craft you know or you know work on this piece and you know that's it's hard to give feedback on that other than you need to put in the time i mean that's that's what it is mm-hmm. um but i i i don't want to shame anybody for trying a joke that fails i mean that's we all have jokes yeah and and so you know just think about but you can you can preempt a lot of that by thinking is this how you want to represent yourself right and I'm sure that the reaction from the joke that didn't go where they thought it would be, maybe that's all it that's, that's all, all it needs to happen. All, all, all yeah. that's necessary. But sometimes it is just like, okay, let's let's discuss this. Let's see if we can frame give this the proper framing. Cause I mean, in, in the stand up class that I teach, we I do try and take some time to like fix a joke. Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just structure, you know, and I can help them go through and fix the structure of it. Uh, if you cha- change the wording, if you give it a different frame, get a little uh, tweak your premise. But sometimes it's just like unpacking, like, what are you trying to say with this joke? And let's see if we can make it work. And sometimes it's just like, I'm not sure that this is a worthy thing to work on. That's true. Yeah. And it, you said something there that I say to myself all the time when I'm writing is, what am I trying to say? Because you, you'll explore sometimes six different half premises that go certain, because you're just trying to hit every angle and see what works. But usually after you explore it for a while, you can just say to yourself, like, if I had to tweet this out, what am I trying to say? And get it really boiled mm-hmm. down into this is, oh, and so this is where my point of view is in the joke. And I can take that. And that now is my premise that says everything. 
it says those five different things or it eliminates four of those and only says one thing, but it's, I finally know what I'm saying. So now the audience has one clear path to follow, right? That their brain is going in the direction that you want it to you, that target assumption you want them to have or that, that, um, that story that you want playing in their brain so that in as few words as possible to get that as many images that are hitting that target. Right. Yeah. I always say there's no, you can't have misdirection if they have no idea which direction they're going. Oh, right. Yeah. You can't pull the rug out from under if they're not on that rug. No, they're like, oh, there were 17 rugs in here. I guess he's (laughs) going to take that one outside and beat it for a while. (laughs) But that's, but that's typical though of a new performer, a new writer, new comedy, new stand up person is like, you're just saying what sounds like comedy to you. Yeah. But if you don't know the structure, then you are probably saying six things and the audience has no idea which one they're supposed to follow. And I, I think, well, that's where I always start is like, here is a simple structure, a way of thinking. And th- through this filter, uh, is your, are your jokes, do they, can they go through this filter? Can they, do they have this, uh, is your premise clear? Does it create a target assumption? Does it, uh, does it give them, uh, like a story and, is there a simple way that you are changing that story with that punchline? Mm-hmm. Is the language sharp? Is there rhythm to it? Um, sometimes all it needs is like you, that connection between that punchline and that setup. Is that connection clear? Mm-hmm. Is it so, close enough to where they they still remember the setup so that the, the punchline lands? Sometimes there's just oh, too yeah. much in the middle, right? Oh, yeah. So in the end, that's all part of the craft. So can you, will your joke stand up to these parameters? Mm-hmm. Where do you fall in, in the, the line of thinking of putting yourself in the joke? Like, I know it's not easy for brand new comics and writers to, to put their heart and soul and, and who they are into every joke. But the, the further you get into it, I think there should be a, the audience should know why I'm telling this joke. Why is this important to yeah. Rick Walker? You know, at what point in the game do they, they kind of learn to focus on that a little bit? Or so do I they? think that, that there's a few parts to that because part of it is what are the stakes of the joke? And if there are no personal stakes, then it's probably not important. Mm-hmm. You know, the more important it is, the funnier it is, I think. Uh, or if it's really important to you, but it's a really mundane. I mean, that's Seinfeld's uh, his whole career is built on. It's really important to him, but it's really mundane. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there is that. So there are high stakes. Everything is high stakes. There's also like that point of view, uh, issue that, and you know, the students, especially when they're 19, you know, they, it won't even be the same point of view four years from now, they, maybe not even oh, next year yeah, I mean, or next semester. Yeah. Uh, well, th- there's that too. And it's like, if they, th- they, they should be looking back at the material that they're writing now and being like, Oh, that's trash because they're, writing is supposed to get better. Like it's all supposed to get better as you progress. Um, so there's that, but also I'm just thinking like, you know, if when I was 19, I didn't really have a a strong sense of who I was. (laughs) I mean, I'm sometimes I still grapple with that, but, but really back then it was more like wearing a personality, like a coat, like Mm -hmm. this is a good coat. I love this coat, but I could change my coat. Right. (laughs) Like I, who I was, was not, that firmly entrenched, or my knowledge of myself was not that firmly entrenched. There, were, I, I was pretty much myself, but I just didn't know how to define that. Yeah. Uh, 
and at that age too, I think you're pretty malleable to where whatever group of friends you're hanging out with, that that can really skew you fifty percent of who you oh, yeah. are easily. For sure, for sure. So there's that aspect of point of view. So I, I I try not to get too bogged down in that because I think that's going to change so much. So getting some good joke writing technique and then building that into the stories that you want to tell, mm-hmm. uh, I think for me that's more important and easier to kind of like. See, sure, and the, and the point of view will, will evolve as you become more crafted and skillful at expressing your ideas. Yeah. You'll be more able to dial up your precise point of view on not only just per topic but kind of your life view as mm-hmm. you move through it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you don't but put too much writing, emphasis on that. Early. Writing a sharp joke that you can deliver, yeah, in a like with punch, yeah, that's that, cool, and like keeping your feet planted and you know, not making a lot of noise with the microphone as you're, right. you know, these things are, are easier to, this part of the craft is easier to handle. Yeah. This is where I think it's an, a lot like golf. You know, there's, there's a million techniques in every golf swing and you can break down the twisting of the mic cord or the moving of the stand or the leaning on the stand instead of like playing through, you know, there's, there's easily 15 to 20 things that you could watch somebody in one minute and say, stop, let's correct that right now. As far as, the physical technique of things, you know, what, I guess I, I'll kind of wrap on this thought just to kind of give you a broad question, but just cause I'm curious with some of the students you have, um, like you just met 70, you said, yeah. so, so pretty quick introduction, pretty quick, just kind of looking them over. Can you ever spot or have you been able to spot somebody like really early on going, Oh, this, this is going to be a great student to have in class or conversely, have you spotted one go, Oh, this is going to be physically and mentally draining. <laughs> like usually the, I mean, as a teacher and you have like 15, 20 people in your class that you have to manage. I mean, the, the, the ideal student is somebody that always comes in prepared, always, you know, is earnest and fun. And, uh, so those, those people are great and they're not necessarily the most talented people. Um, and sometimes it can be really frustrating. The most talented, like charismatic person is not necessarily the hardest worker or Mm -hmm. the the one that is easy to be around. So it's like a double edged sword. Like the ideal student would have all of those things, but you know, in a practical sense, (laughs) you know, yeah. So I, I, but I think it's, it's, I've been around so many tremendously talented people and i it's inexplicable to me how some people break and some people don't like mm-hmm. how some people become famous and uh and some people don't like i know so many talented people i don't know what that intangible is that, yeah yeah well, we've seen it over the course of 20 almost 30 years uh, yeah. you know people that we saw when we were working in clubs or and you in theater and in improv and there's some people that given the correct connections and timing, you know, would, yeah. would blow anything that we've seen on TV or movies out of the water. But for whatever reason, it doesn't line up that way. One of the things that I, uh, a core part of the things that I teach are these 10 things that require no talent. And it's just like being on time, being coachable, uh, being prepared, you know, mm-hmm. it's just 10 things. These, these require no talent doing extra. Uh, and if you have talent, and you have seven of these things, you're going to have a career. You know, right. if you have talent and you have two of these things, 
you are not going to have a career. Right. I'll get the full list of those 10 and put them in the show notes. Okay. Yeah, I, for I want sure. to see if I can do any I can of these. Share, I can share them with you immediately. Rick, it's been good seeing you, buddy. Oh, man, my man. I'm glad it worked out. It's been uh, too long, oh, as they say. That is true. Let's not make it that long next time. Time flies. I'll come back within a year and, and teach a session at your school. Please. Cool, man. Thank you. All right. My pleasure. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that interview with Rick Walker. Wasn't that cool? Did you know you could take a college major and major in comedy? Man, if that had been around, if that had only been around. Hey, if you're a Patreon member, check the inbox, your email inbox, because there's a little bonus podcast that uh, Rick and I did after recording this one that's available just for members of Club 52. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that a couple different ways. One, simply leave us an iTunes review. Second, join the insider tip sheet by shooting me an email at schooloflaughs at gmail.com. Thirdly, you can support us through Patreon, where you can choose to contribute one time or a continuing donation each month to help us uh, get these podcasts edited and mastered. And thanks to our editor and master, master podcast editor, Doc Kennedy. All right, that's going to do it for now. All kinds of cool stuff happening in early 2020, including the Master Laughter class designed specifically for speakers and content creators, CEOs, people who speak in front of groups but may not want to be a comedian, but might like to punch up their programs with humor so that they're well-liked, well-received, people begin to know, like, and trust you through comedy, and then your message is received quicker so your impact can be larger. If you're interested in that, it's a day and a half program. It's going to be here in Nashville, Tennessee, first week of January 2020. If all things coalesce, shoot me an email, rick at masterlaughterclass.com. And you can also go to masterlaughterclass.com to find out more information. Thanks again for supporting the podcast. Thanks again to Donna Lewis for being our supporter for this particular episode. Stay safe. And stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.